Welcome to Chapter 2, Communication and Perception. Think back to the first day of classes. Did you plan ahead for what you were going to wear? Did you get the typical school supplies together? Did you try and find your classrooms ahead of time or look for the syllabus online? Did you look up your professors on an online professor evaluation site? Based on your answers to these questions, I could form an impression of who you are as a student. But would that perception be accurate? Would it match up with how you see yourself as a student? And perception, of course, is a two-way street. You also formed impressions about your professor based on their appearance, dress, organization, intelligence, and approachability. As a professor who teaches others how to teach, I instruct my student teachers to really take the first day of class seriously. The impressions that both teacher and student make on the first day help set the tone for the rest of the semester. As we go through our daily lives, we perceive all sorts of people and objects. We often make sense of these perceptions by using previous experiences to help filter and organize the information we take in. Sometimes we encounter new or contradictory information that changes the way we think about a person, group, or object. The perceptions that we make of others and that others make of us affect how we communicate and act. In this chapter, we will learn about the perception process, how we perceive others, how we perceive and present ourselves, and how we can improve our perceptions. 2.1 Perception Process Learning Objectives 1. Define perception 2. Discuss how salience influences the selection of perceptual information 3. Explain the ways in which we organize perceptual information and 4. Discuss the role of schemata in the interpretation of perceptual information Perception is the process of selecting organizing and interpreting information. This process, which is shown in figure 2.1, the perception process, includes the perception of selected stimuli that pass through our perceptual filters, are organized into our existing structures and patterns, and then are interpreted based on previous experiences. Although perception is a largely cognitive and psychological process, how we perceive the people and objects around us affects our communication. We respond differently to an object or person that we perceive favorably than we do something we find unfavorable. But how do we filter through the mass amounts of incoming information, organize it, and make meaning from what makes it through our perceptual filters and into our social realities? Selecting information. We take in information through all five of our senses, but our perceptual field, the world around us, includes so many stimuli that it is impossible for our brains to process and make sense of all of it. So, as information comes in through our senses, various factors influence what actually continues on through the perceptual process. Fisk and Taylor, 1991. Selecting is the first part of the perception process in which we focus our attention on certain incoming sensory information. Think about how, 
Out of many other possible stimuli to pay attention to, you may hear a familiar voice in the hallway, see a pair of shoes you want to buy from across the mall, or smell something cooking for dinner when you get We quickly cut through and push to the background of all kinds of sights, smells, sounds, and other stimuli. But how do we decide what to select and what to leave out? We tend to pay attention to information that is salient. Salience is the degree to which something attracts our attention in a particular context. The thing attracting our attention can be abstract, like a concept, or concrete, like an object. For example, a person's identity as a Native American may become salient when they are protesting at the Columbus Day Parade in Denver, Colorado, or a bright flashlight shining in your face while camping at night is sure to be salient. The degree of salience depends on three features, Fisk and Taylor, 1991. We tend to find salient things that are visually or orally stimulating and things that meet our needs or interests. Lastly, expectations affect what we find salient. Visual and oral stimulation. It's probably not surprising to learn that visually and or orally stimulating things can be salient in our perceptual field and get our attention. Creatures ranging from fish to hummingbirds are attracted to things like silver spinners or on fishing poles or red and yellow bird feeders. Having our senses stimulated isn't always a positive thing though. Think about the couple that won't stop talking during a movie or the upstairs neighbor whose subwoofer shakes her ceiling at night. In short, stimuli can be attention-getting in a productive or distracting way. As communicators, we can use this knowledge to benefit by minimizing distractions when we have something important to say. It's probably better to have a serious conversation with a significant other in a quiet place rather than a crowded food court. As we will learn later in Chapter 12, public speaking in various contexts, altering the rate, volume, and pitch of your voice, known as vocal variety, can help keep your audience engaged, as can gestures and movement. Conversely, verbal adapters or nervous movements we do to relieve anxiety, like pacing or twirling our hair, can be distracting. Aside from minimizing distractions and delivering our messages enthusiastically, the content of our communication also affects salience. We tend to pay attention to information that we perceive to meet our needs or interests in some way. This type of selective attention can help us meet instrumental needs and get things done. When you need to speak with a financial aid officer about your scholarship and loans, you sit in the waiting room and listen for your name to be called. Paying close attention to whose name is called means you can be ready to start your meeting and hopefully get your business handled. When we don't think certain messages meet our needs, stimuli that would normally get our attention may be completely lost. Imagine you're in the grocery store and you hear someone say your name. You turn around only to hear that person say, finally, I said your name three times. I thought you forgot who I was. A few seconds before, when you were focused on figuring out which kind of orange juice to get, you were attending to the various pulp options to the point that you tuned out other stimuli. 
even something as familiar as the sound of someone calling your name. Again, as communicators, especially in persuasive contexts, we can use this to our advantage by making it clear how our messages or proposition meets the needs of our audience members. Whether a sign helps us find the nearest gas station, the sound of a ringtone helps us find our missing cell phone, or a speaker tells us how, to, how avoiding processed foods will improve our health, we select and attend to information that meets our needs. We also find salient information that interests us. Of course, many times, stimuli that meet our needs are also interesting. But it's worth discussing that these two items separately because sometimes we find things interesting that don't necessarily meet our needs. I'm sure we've all gotten stuck in a television show, video game, or random project and pay attention to that at the expense of something else that actually meets our needs like cleaning or spending time with a significant other. Paying attention to the things that interest us but don't meet specific needs seems like the basic formula for procrastination that we're all familiar with. In many cases, we know what interests us and we automatically gravitate towards stimuli that match up with that. For example, as you filter through radio stations, you're likely, you already have an idea of what kind of music interests you and you will stop on a station playing something in that genre while skipping right past the stations playing something you aren't interested in. Because of this tendency, we often have to end up being forced into or accidentally experiencing something new in order to create or discover new interests. For example, you may not even realize you're interested in Asian history until you are required to take such a course and have an engaging professor who sparks that interest in you. Or you may accidentally stumble on a new area of interest when you take a class, you wouldn't otherwise because it fits your schedule. As communicators, you can take advantage of this perceptual tendency by adapting your topic and content to the interests of your audience. Expectations. The relationship between salience and expectations is a little more complex. Basically, we can find expected things salient and find things that are unexpected salient. This may sound confusing. A couple examples should illustrate the point. If you're expecting a package to be delivered, you might pick up on the slightest noise of a truck engine or someone's footsteps approaching your front door. Since we expect something to happen, we may be extra tuned in to the clues that, that it is coming. In terms of the unexpected, if you have a shy and soft-spoken friend who you overhear raising the volume and pitch of his voice while talking to another friend, you may pick up on that and assume that something out of the ordinary is going on. For something unexpected to be salient, it has to reach a certain threshold of difference. If you walked into your regular class and there were one or two more students there than normal, you may not even notice. If you walked into your class and there was someone dressed up as a wizard, you would probably notice. So if we were expected to experience something out of the routine, like a package delivery, we will find stimuli related to that expectation salient. If we experience something we, we weren't expecting, 
and that is significantly different from our routine experiences, then we will likely find it salient. We can also apply this concept to our communication. I always encourage my students to include supporting material in their You can help keep your audience engaged by employing good research skills to find such information. There is a middle area where slight deviations from routine experiences may go unnoticed because we aren't expecting them. To go back to the earlier example, if you weren't expecting a package and you regularly hear vehicle engines and sidewalk foot traffic outside your house, those, those pretty routine sounds wouldn't as likely catch your attention, even if they were slightly more or less traffic than expected. This is because our expectations are often based on previous experience and patterns we have observed and internalized, which allows our brains to go on autopilot sometimes and fill in things that are missing or overlook extra things. Look at the following sentence and read it out loud. Of course, you'll have to do this on your own. This example illustrates a test of our expectations and an annoyance to every college student. We have all had the experience of getting a paper back with typos and spelling errors circled. This can be frustrating, especially if we took the time to proofread. When we first learn to read and write, we learn letter by letter. A teacher or parent would show us with a card with apple written on it, and we would sound it out. Over time, we learned the patterns of letters and sounds and could see the combinations of letters and pronounce the word quickly. Since we know what to expect when we see certain patterns of letters and know what comes next in a sentence since we wrote the paper, we don't take the time to look at each letter as we proofread. This can lead us to overlook common typos and spelling errors even if we proofread something multiple times. On a side note, I'll share two tips to help you avoid proofreading errors. First, have a friend proofread your paper. Since they didn't write it, they have fewer expectations regarding the content. Second, read your paper backwards. Since patterns of speech aren't the same in reverse, you have to stop and focus on each word. Now that we know how we select stimuli, let's turn our attention on how to organize the information we receive. Organizing information. Organizing is the second part of the perception process in which we sort and categorize information that we perceive based on innate and learned cognitive patterns. Three ways we sort things into patterns are by using proximity, similarity, and difference. Corrin, 1980. In terms of proximity, we tend to think that things that are close together go together. For example, have you ever been waiting for a friend to be helped in a business and the clerk assumes that you and the person are standing beside the person standing beside you are together? The slightly awkward moment usually ends when you and the other person look at each other, then back at the clerk, and one of you explains that you're not together. Even though you may have never met the other person in your life, the clerk used a basic perceptual organizing cue to group you together because you were standing in proximity to one another. We also group things based on similarity. We tend to think similar looking or similar acting things belong together. I have two friends that I occasionally go out with. 
And we all we are all three males around the same age or the same race with short glasses, with short hair and glasses. Aside from that, we don't really look alike. But on more occasions, a server at a restaurant has assumed that we're brothers, despite the fact that many of our other features are different. The salient features are organized based on similarity, and the three of us are suddenly related. We also organize information that we take in based on difference. In this case, we assume that the item that looks or acts different from the rest doesn't belong with the group. Perceptual errors involving people and assumptions of difference can be especially awkward, if not offensive. My friend's mother, who's Vietnamese-American, was attending a conference at which another attendee assumed she was a hotel worker and asked her to throw something away for her. In this case, my friend's mother was a person of color at a convention with mostly white attendees, so an impression was formed based on the other person's perception of this difference. These strategies for organizing information are so common that they're built into how we teach our children basic skills and how we function in our daily lives. I'm sure we've all had a look at pictures in grade school and determine which things went together and which didn't belong. If you think of the literal act of organizing something, like your desk at home or work, we follow these same strategies. If you have a bunch of papers and mail on the top of your desk, you will likely sort papers into separate piles for separate classes or put bills in a separate place than personal mail. You may even have a drawer for pens, pencils, and other supplies and another drawer for files. In this case, you are grouping items based on similarities and differences. You may also group things based on proximity. For example, by putting financial items like your checkbook, a calculator, and your pay stubs in one area, you can also update your budget efficiently. In summary, we simplify information and look for patterns to help us more efficiently communicate and get through life. Simplifications and categorizing based on patterns isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, without this capability, we would not likely have the ability to speak, read, or engage in other complex cognitive behavioral functions. Our brain innately categorizes and files information and experiences away for later retrieval. And different parts of the brain are responsible for different sensory experiences. In short, it is natural for things to group together in some ways. There are differences among people, and looking for patterns helps us in many practical ways. However, the judgments we place on various patterns and categories are not natural. They are learned and culturally and contextually relative. Our, per our perceptual patterns do become unproductive and even unethical when judgments we associate with certain patterns are based on stereotypical or prejudicial thinking. We also organize interactions and interpersonal experiences based on our first-hand experiences. When two people experience the same encounter differently, misunderstandings and conflict may result. Punctuation refers to the structuring of information in a timeline to determine the cause, stimulus, and effect response of our communication or interactions. Sillers, 1980. Applying this concept to interpersonal conflict 
can help us see how the perception process extends beyond the individual to the interpersonal level. This concept also helps illustrate how organization and interpretation can happen together and how information can influence how we organize information and vice versa. Where does a conflict begin and end? To answer this question depends on how the people involved in the conflict punctuate or structure their conflict experience. Punctuation differences can often escalate conflicts, which can lead to a variety of relationship problems. Wozniak, Bevelis, and Jackson, 1967. For example, Linda and Joe are on a project team at work and have a deadline approaching. Linda has been working on the project over the weekend in anticipation of meeting of her meeting with Joe first thing Monday morning. She has had some questions along the way and has emailed Joe for clarification and input, but he hasn't responded. On Monday morning, Linda walks into the meeting room, sees Joe, and says, I've been working on this project all weekend and needed your help. I emailed you three times. What were you doing? Joe responds, I had no idea you emailed me. I was gone all weekend on a camping trip. In this instance, the conflict started for Linda two days ago and has just started for Joe. So for the two of them to be most effectively, most effectively manage this conflict, they need to communicate so that their punctuation or where the conflict started for each other is clear and matches up. In this example, Linda made an impression about Joe's level of commitment to the project based on an interpretation she made after selecting and organizing incoming information. Being aware of punctuation is an important part of perception checking, which we will discuss later. Now let's take a closer look at how interpretation plays into the perception process. Interpreting information. Although selecting and organizing incoming stimuli happens very quickly and sometimes without much conscious thought, interpretation can be a much more deliberate and conscious step in the perception, perception process. Interpretation is the third part of the perception process in which we assign meaning to our experiences using mental structures known as schemata. Schemata are like databases of stored related information that we use to interpret new experiences. We all have fairly complicated schemata that have developed over time as small units of information combined to make more meaningful complexes of information. We have an overall schema about education and how to interpret experiences with teachers and classmates. This schema started developing before we even went to preschool based on things that parents, peers, and the media told us about school. For example, you learned that certain symbols and objects, like an apple, a ruler, a calculator, and a notebook are associated with being a teacher or student. You learn new concepts like grades and recess, and you engaged in new practices like doing homework, studying, and taking tests. You also form new relationships with teachers, administrators, and classmates. As you progress through your education, your schema adapted to the changing environment. How smooth or troubling schema 
it has been, reevaluation is varied from situation to situation and person to person. For example, some students adapt their schema relatively easy as they move from elementary to middle to high school and on to college and are faced with new expectations for behavior and academic engagement. Other students don't adapt as easy and holding on to their old schema creates problems as they try and interpret new information through old incompatible schema. We've all been in that similar situation at some point in our lives where we know that revising our schemata can be stressful and that such revisions takes effort and usually involves some mistakes, disappointments, and frustrations. But being able to adapt our schemata is a sign of, complex, of cognitive complexibility, which is an important part of communication competence. So even though the process may be challenging, it can also be a time for learning and growth. It is important to be aware of schemata because our interpretations affect our behavior. For example, if you're doing a group project for a class and you perceive a group to be shy based on your schema of how shy people communicate, you may avoid giving him presentation responsibilities in your group project because you do not think shy people make good public speakers. Schemata also guide our interactions, providing a script for our behaviors. We know, in general, how to act and communicate in a waiting room, in a classroom, on a first date, and on a game show. Even though a person who has never been on a game show can develop a schema for how to act in that environment by watching The Price is Right, for example, people go, people go to great lengths to make shirts with clever sayings or act enthusiastically of hopes of, of being picked to be a part of the studio audience and hopefully becoming a contestant on the show. As we have seen, schemata are used to interpret behaviors, others' behaviors, and form impressions about who they are as a person. To help this process along, we often solicit information from people to help us place them in a pre-existing schema. In the United States and many other Western cultures, People's identities are closely tied to what they do for a living. When we introduce ourselves, when we introduce others or ourselves, occupation is usually one of the first things we mention. Think about how your communication with someone might differ if he or she were introduced to you as an artist versus a doctor. We make similar interpretations based on where people are from their age, their race, and other social and cultural factors. We will learn more about how culture, gender, and other factors influence our perceptions as we continue through the chapter. In summary, we have schemata about individuals, groups, places, and things, and these schemata filter our perceptions during before and after interactions. As schemata are retrieved from memory, they are executed, like computer programs or apps on your smartphone. This helps us to interpret the world around us. Just like computer programs and apps must be regularly updated to improve their functioning, competent communicators adapt, update, and adapt their schemata as they have new experiences. This concludes the perception process in Chapter 2.1. Come back and join us for Chapter 2.2.